Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to Sarah Ryan, the researcher and campaigner who's harnessed the raw power of maternal grief to change lives. After her autistic son, Connor, died in a residential mental health unit, Sarah was convinced that negligence was to blame. She began a campaign that not only brought the local authority to justice, but also put Connor's humanity at the front and centre. Sarah talks about righteous anger, mother blaming, the urgent need for change in our care system, and how friends and family can help you to endure. Sarah, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I'm so delighted to have you. I've been following you for, I think, years now and like watching in slight awe at your campaigning after the death of your son, Connor. Um, and I just was desperate to invite you onto the podcast for the second season because I think people need to hear your story. But I also think that this is still such a hidden thing that so many parents are actually going through so many parents have lost children in this system and I really hope that at some point people will be more interested in listening than they are now Mm. yeah so first of all tell me about Connor whenever I see a picture of him I think god he was a handsome lad wasn't he (laughs) (laughs) he was a looker he was he was he was really funny actually because he was one of those babies that was that you know you get those babies where you just want to eat their cheeks 
He was such a cute baby and he was such a cute toddler. And then he sort of, when he got into about nine or ten, he, he, he just changed the way he looked and he developed this camera smile where he just sort of bare his teeth at the camera. So we've got this great long stretch of photos <laughs> of Connor with his say cheese smile when we didn't really want him to say cheese. And then he just blossomed into this beautiful young man that he was. Yeah. So it was, it was quite funny. His looks, the looks have become more important since he died, oddly, because the, the, his personality was so enormous. Yeah, yeah. He was so quirky, so generous, so funny, so unusual that, that he, he was just a presence. You know, it's, it's, it's odd that, yeah, the looks thing is, um, funny enough, Richard and I were saying just the other night, because every so often his photo crops up online. And sure. You sort of think, God, oh, you know, that, those prom photos or whatever. You know, we just didn't realise the, the, how they would come to symbolise something so sort of enormous, really. So, yeah, he was great. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely to have those those photos. And I I loved your description of him wearing what, like a police high-vis jacket for quite a long time when he was younger and um, and swimming goggles outside of the pool. Yeah, I mean, we've got, we've got a photo of a holiday in France where the whole family, mum and dad, sort of put some sort of, great accounts and we all went and there's photos of meal times because I always took a lot of photos anyway and everyone's just sitting there eating whatever it is they're noshing on and there's Connor with a shower cap and a set of goggles <laughs> and nobody's paying any attention you know we're all just eating and again if that's retrospective at the time we wouldn't have even I'd have taken all those photos and none of us would have sort of commented on it because that's just what he did and it, yeah. it becomes more sort of significant now looking back and you sort of think when you're living in a family where you've got such joyous difference, you don't appreciate it, really. You just get on with it. Yeah, it's just, just life. But you've got, is, is it five children you've got? Yeah, there's Rosie, William, then there's Connor, Owen and Tom. Quite close in age because Rich and I had two kids each. I had Rosie and Connor and he had William and Owen and then we had Tom together. So we had like, and we watched an old bit of an old home movie yesterday at Christmas dinner. <laughs> from sort of eight down to Tom was about two or three and the noise I was just watching it now just like listening. so every day was like a sort of massive just noise from the moment they woke up woke up <laughs> oh it's hilarious I must sort of snip some of those up and send them to share the family because it's just I was just saying to Rich my god look at <laughs> look at that <laughs> And of course, whenever we went out with with Connor as well, because his behaviour outside, he could really, um, depending on what happened, he could be in a, a really brilliant mood, or he might something might really distress him. You can mm. never anticipate, and so you, you we could be out somewhere. I don't know, in the British um, War Museum, and Connor would just be sort of lying on the floor, just beside himself, and everybody else is just doing stuff, and it's oh dear, it was a real childhood for them. So Connor was autistic. Yeah. And so, what age did you did you realise that was it? Was it something that was really obvious from when he was very tiny? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting because he was just. I sort of noticed that because he, he was so good, I just could not get my head around this baby who just like literally. I could have. I wasn't working. I was doing a degree at the time, and I could have. Well, I did take him into classes. Just he just would be content to just look around, and so I actually contacted, went to the GP and got referred to a paediatrician when Connor was about 18 months to sort of say, you know, he's just, he's not walking, he's not talking, he's just very, very, very good. And I uh, yeah. got laughed out of the, laughed out of the guy's <laughs> office, which was a bit embarrassing. Which is the standard response, right? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Right. He's just a boy, I'll catch up, get over it. Yeah. 
And then about, yeah, just weeks later at his um, 18-month checkup with the health visitor, she sort of gave a cross every box as in alarm, 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 alarm. And um, then it was downhill for quite a long time because then you get tipped into, and I hope it is different now, but I suspect it isn't, tipped mm. into a space in which there's something very wrong with your child. And it's wrong, right. wrong, 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 wrong. That's all you hear about. Um, so that takes a bit of shaking off. I really, I really worry about them. No, I, I mean, I don't think it's changed that much, actually. And I, I really worry about the messaging that parents receive, like in the early days of identifying autism, because it seems like, you know, unless you already have some knowledge of that world, what you're hearing is an incredibly negative message that, yeah. you know, people carry forward, like people struggle to let go of that idea that their child is somehow like broken or, or malfunctioning. And like, don't find the joy in in those children as they would do if they hadn't heard any of that stuff, I think. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And, I, and it is terrible because it was even to the extent I had a baby manual at the time, as you do, that I'd have with Rosie. And Connor, at that point, he, anything in the baby manual that sort of said, you know, if you're worried about X, Y or Z, look at the help section at the back. I was just like, wow, he's, he's not even in the baby manual anymore. <laughs> he's, well, yeah. he's sort of like he's completely other. And like you said, you don't have any knowledge of disability or autism or whatever your child gets diagnosed with. You you really draw on, you know, the sort of current thinking at that time, which which was, this is a terrible, this we need to fix this. You know, Connor's yeah. suddenly dropped off he's dropped off a cliff and we need to get him back. I mean the that is such a terrible time, I think, because it's two things there. I think A, you don't really understand your child, so you're misunderstanding them. Mm-hmm. which must be really difficult for the child at times when Connor would sort of go into complete distress at the time I'd just be like baffled why why are you yeah, why are you so yeah. distressed but when you start to understand well it's because of the lights or it's because of the noise or we couldn't reverse the car for years it would send him yeah. into sort of it was so distressing so you've got a parent who doesn't understand their child so they can't ease the world for them yeah and then you've also got, like you say, you've got this sort of period in which you sort of mourn. You almost mourn. It's horrible. And you, you lose the joy and you just see things with a different lens. And then eventually you catch up and then you yeah, realise yeah. and you meet other parents and everything sort of shakes down. And you sort of think, well, this is fine. You know, my child isn't the problem. It's everybody else around them. <laughs> I think that's the answer for all of life. <laughs> you don't need to lose those years at all and I've, I've written a second book around for health professionals and, and social care professionals where I'm sort of really trying to say when you give a child a diagnosis it should come with a real sort of aspirational you know your child has the capacity to do x y and z and be whatever they want to be rather than this is the end of your child's life and your life wait for us in the future yeah I it's it's really striking and, and uh, you know it really, it really is still going on so um, Connor was also epileptic, which I don't know much about epilepsy, but it seems like it's quite hard to identify from talking to other people whose children eventually get a diagnosis. It seems like it, it takes a while. Yeah, I mean, it's that's epilepsy still strikes fear into me. And I, I, with Connor, he just had these very strange moments where he would just completely disappear. And the, the, one, the most noticeable one was when we were watching Up and he gets so emotionally involved in films. And when there was mild perils, peril to granddad on the mm-hmm. Disney film, Connor just, just literally just shut off and we thought, well, that's very odd. And then it happened a few times. So then we sort of go to the GP and you get batted back. And there's something around children who are autistic and Connor also had learning disabilities, which means they don't really have real epilepsy like other kids. Okay. So when you eventually get a diagnosis, which takes sort of tonic-clonic seizures, 
repeated tonic-clonic seizures in Connor's case, mm. ambulance is coming. I mean, look, I'm not a medical doctor in my case, so no. he's actually got epilepsy. This is a tonic-clonic seizure. And they're, they're the ones where you have convulsions, right? Yeah, you sort of, right, yeah. literally, like, it, how you would imagine, lying on the floor, convulsing, sort of, like, yeah. really, really nasty. But yeah. then, like, Connor, when he finally got diagnosed, he got prescribed some sort of medicine from the 1950s, which never changed. He had epilepsy for about two years before he died. And um, he never went to, like, there's a first fit clinic at the hospital. He never got any of the, the mainstream epilepsy treatment. He just right. got logged to like a set of horse pills, basically. And, mm. and even when he was in the unit and that, that terrible sort of 107 days he spent there, because I went to visit him every day, pretty much, or one of us would always go every day, mm. and sort of seeing that he'd had a seizure, because you could tell he'd had a seizure, because he'd be completely sort of shot away and he's, he'd often bitten his tongue and stuff and sort of saying to Stan, mm. he's having seizures, you know, you need to be careful. And to find out after Connor died that they'd completely discounted this, and sort of right. emphatically said he wasn't having seizures was just oh I, I mean you you know as a mother you just you spend your life just protecting your children with fiercely the, you, know, yeah. you, lay, you would lay down in front of a train to protect your children and to find out there was such a careless just sort of cruel disregard mm. yeah of convenience really and like I uh, you know, reading it. So we probably should tell the story before we get into this discussion. But hey, let's let's um, you know, let's let's do this now. But like reading your book, what really struck me was that the people who were supposed to be caring for him, like almost couldn't read him, but had no interest in doing that. You know, like it was they didn't see it as part of their job to understand him or to try and you know work out how to make things better for him they were just holding him and managing him uh, it's just really heartbreaking to see that I know it's really because when we found out about the unit because Connor had sort of suddenly become very very distressed and very concerning behavior and mm. it was an NHS unit it was something like three or four thousand pounds a week there was a staff of 24 experts, including learning disability nurses, OTs, dieticians, you know. You sort of think, well, this is going to be gold-plated care and treatment. It's yeah. called an assessment, yeah. short-term assessment and treatment unit. And like you say, once he was in there, and I don't blame the staff particularly because the whole the culture of the place was just di- diabolical, but they didn't, mm. they didn't care. It was literally a holding place. But it, funnily enough, there was two student nurses and at Connor's inquest, one of the student nurses' evidence, she said she was told off because she talked to Connor too much because he was so entertaining and fun to be with. And they actually sort of said to you, don't spend so much time with the patients. And you think, oh, my God, oh, you've got no. five patients there, this massive staff. You've always got four <laughs> members of staff on duty and don't talk to the patients. It's so dehumanising and oh, it's just depressing. The only thing is that one, one thing that sort of I hold on to a few things really, but one mm. Connor had a one of those small video cameras. I can't. They were quite sort of trendy. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't think what they were called, but yes, I know. Before everyone had them on their phone, we were yeah. buying those sort of funny cameras. Yeah, yeah, like a little pocket thing, and and we got yeah. it back after he died. And I'd, it took me ages before I could look at the film because I was just dreading what he might have filmed. Mm. And um, there was a couple of bits where he was just filming in his room or whatever and then there was one bit where he just sort of slowly filmed him giving the finger to the door (laughs) 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 I sort of thought oh you little you cute little kid you know you've still got your spirit even even in that terrible place so 
you you know an actual teenager and that's you know that like with all the dehumanizing we see and also like the sentimentalizing that that comes hand in hand with that of learning disabled kids and autistic kids but actually we need more stories about kids flying the bird at maturity yeah. because all of that is there you know it's just that we erase it I know, and it was like when when he was younger, we used to laugh so much because I mean, we we you probably know I swear I'm like a trooper, but we didn't really <laughs> let the kids swear when they were younger. And Connor would just walk out of the room every now and again. And he'd just sort of say, "Oh, fuck right off," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we just couldn't. You could not keep a straight face to sort of tell him off. It was just hilarious. He was just very subversive. <laughs> he really was. It was just brilliant. He really knew his own mind, and he just yeah, he's he's just yeah. Great. So the unit, let's talk about the unit. He was taken into there after his behaviour became quite troubled and presumably nobody quite knew what to do about it immediately. And But once he was there, he was kind of stuck. Yeah, I know. He, it was terrible because he in the, he'd had two or three months of really troubling behaviour. That's a nice way of calling it. But then he punched his teaching assistant who had looked after him for years, sort of supported him, and, and he punched her in the face in a rage at school. And he'd been suspended a few times, but that just seemed really sort of worrying. And his behaviour at home was very aggressive, and his younger brother was obviously quite much smaller than him. And in the end, a friend told me about this unit, because we didn't know about it, another irony. It's only about a mile yeah. from where we live. And um, it was short-term assessment and treatment, and it was sort of presented that it was going to be two or three weeks Mm-hmm. to work out what was what was troubling him what was the problem here yeah and so we took him literally admitted him as a voluntary patient though he wasn't voluntary at all he obviously didn't want to go mm. within and that evening I got a call about midnight to sort of say that he would turned on a nurse and he'd been sectioned and oh god it was oh god it was awful he was restrained I mean the whole thing is just so mm. upsetting and so he had a month so that immediately gave him a month and then it just sort of it just sort of drifted on and drifted on and we tried to arrange meetings to come to some sort of resolution and they kept talking about there's different sorts of meetings and they're all acronyms and <laughs> it just drifted on and then eventually there was a meeting arranged for the 8th of July which was a I can't remember they called it an all professionals super gold standard meeting where the, a plan would be made for Connor to come home with relevant support and mm. how to work and all the, the you know the minutiae of the details and on the 3rd of July, Rich went to see him because I was at a work dinner. Mm. It was seeing, it was Andy Murray playing tennis, I remember that. And I was interviewed for work because I'm a researcher and we interview people about the health experiences and we had a research assistant and she'd asked, she'd asked her to interview me for practice. And so that afternoon on the 3rd, she interviewed me and filmed me talking about Connor, which was really funny because I'd never been interviewed about him before. And it was an interesting process as a researcher because I kept like going down certain routes where I was talking about things and then I'd bring it back. So it gave me quite a lot of insight into what it's like to be interviewed. Yeah, on the other side of the chair. Yeah, the other side of the chair was quite interesting, but it was really sad because, of course, he was locked up in this hospital still. Mm. And then the next morning I went to work and just got a call to say, you know, can, I mean, the, the psychiatrist rang me. Mm. And I'd just been to prep, bought my lunch up. And I always remember this. It's such strange things you remember that I put my lunch in the fridge and I'm not a put my lunch in the fridge sort of person. God knows why I remember that. Something about the strangeness of that yeah, day. Yeah, something about the strangeness that I actually put my lunch in the fridge and then just got this call to sort of say, are you busy sort of thing? Fucking hell. 
<laughs> well, there's nothing that you would be too busy with for that conversation. Oh, right? no, she's. Oh, if you could, I think, could you come to the hospital? Um, Connor's on his way to hospital. Mm. And uh, it was just, it was, it it was. Well, I just can't. <laughs> I still can't. Yeah. Really talk about it because you just sort of you just. I mean, I left the building. I was going to catch the bus first. And she said something, because I sort of said to her, is he breathing? She said, he's been found in the bath. And I remember sort of saying, is he breathing? And she said something like, they've, something like they've, they've got, he was breathing when he left in the ambulance or something really peculiar that didn't really tell me anything. Right. So I left work, sort of got to the bus stop and thought, oh, actually, I'd better get a cab. And then I rang the administrator at work. Guy's still completely baffling behaviour by me, just to sort of say, oh, Carolyn, I'm just on my way to the hospital. You might wonder why I just walked straight out. And she, mm. she said, I'm... Wait, I'm coming with you, which was really good for her because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And um, then we just sort of sat in this blooming cab going along the Banbury Road to the JR. And I just remember sort of thinking, wow, you know, is, is he going to, what's going to happen? What happens if you have a, is he, is he going to be in a coma? Is he going to have some sort of injury? Is he going to, is this, what happens? They're not going to, it's not going to knock his brilliance out of him, is it? You know, it was just my mind. Right. Yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. And then, of course, we didn't have any cash on us, either of us. Oh, it's just, and then you shove some euros in this poor taxi driver's hands. I got there's a bunch of screwed up euros at the bottom of a bag. It's probably like 2p or something. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then that was it. It was, you know. It was what yeah. it was. That's that. That's that's how you find out. Yeah, and he was eighteen. Eighteen. And as it turned out later in the inquest into his death, he'd already died at the unit. Yeah, I've, a friend of mine works at reception at the JR, and she knew before I did. Yeah, she. I spoke to her afterwards about that because I because they did CPR and it's all this chat still, isn't there, about the resuscitation? And she said that they people do. Medic paramedics will try and resuscitate children, um, but yeah, the the thing was we found out after because you piece it together. There was there's so many strange things that happened, but Connor had been given a, a tour of the Oxford Bus Company, which he'd always loved. He's a support teacher who punched had arranged for them to give him a tour, and it was that morning. And so he got up early, obviously. God knows what stuff, what where, what happened in that unit, but he got up and he went and had a bath and. The bathroom was downstairs next to the nurse's office and the two nurses were doing an online Tesco's order. And we have no idea how long he was in the bath. We have no no idea about anything, really. They, the inquest people didn't really answer or they sort of gave conflicting evidence. And, and so you just don't know. So basically, just in, in an NHS hospital, he just was left to drown. It's just horrifying. And something that had never happened to him in his whole life at home. No. And in a in a unit that is supposed to be incredibly well staffed, and yeah, so um, God, it it's just tragic. Um, I'm having a little cry with you. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, okay. no, no, we're both yourself. <laughs> like hours of conversation of people just grizzling. Um, so and it it seems that that pretty soon after this awful news like you're still digesting the worst news anyone could possibly have to digest but very very soon you're advised that you have to make legal moves very carefully because the system will be invested in covering up what's gone on yeah I mean the the 
Well, the key thing, I suppose, was that I was writing a blog about our family life called My Daft Life, which started off in about 2011, just for friends and family, really, because of the funny things that, that happened all the time. And it was just a set of snippets of, like, tea time banter. And when Connor went into the unit, I started sort of, I literally wrote entries day one, day two, day 16, whatever. I didn't realise that I was creating a record of what had happened. But at the same time, the blog got quite good readership and it went beyond. It was anonymised, but lots of people were reading it. And the day he died, uh, I don't know, about six o'clock in the evening, I suddenly thought I need to let people know he's died. This is terrible. So I just wrote a one-liner sort of saying, Connor's died in the bath or something. And a barrister got in touch, Keelan Gallagher. She messaged me on Twitter and said, you need to get in touch with Inquest because you you may well find that the state does not respond very well to things like this, um, the NHS or whatever state body it is. And that was a, that was such a shock on top of the, the state. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't quite believe that because I sort of thought it was the NHS, you know, there's going to be a gold-plated sort of cavalry working out what's happened to you, you know, that, that was a given to me at that point. And so I got in touch with Inquest within a day or two and they got, they were brilliant and lined up a solicitor called Charlotte Howarth Heard mm-hmm. at Binman's and she sort of laid out very clearly what we needed to do, which wasn't what we expected. And part of it was to raise money to have legal representation at Connor's Inquest. And she made it clear that we would probably face quite a battle and she also um, said things like, you need to get Connor's medical records as soon as possible. It was really chilling. Wow. Yeah. We had to deal with it. Was, it was awful. They are experienced in this and you are not. So they have this advantage that shouldn't be an advantage, but it is. Yeah, exactly. And also, of course, the trusts are really experienced in it because it happens to them all the yeah. time. So they've got their own in-house legal people and then they've got this army of really unpleasant barristers that they draw on. God, imagine being that person. It's it really, it's, the inequality is stark. And all we had really was a leaflet from the hospital, from the coroner, sort of basically just saying, you know, there'll be an inquest from the coroner, you know, no information whatsoever. So we did actually get the all the records. And that was, I mean, even that process right at the very beginning was, they sort of, they made a big thing, the trust. My mum was dealing with them because I couldn't, just could not do it, obviously. She was sort of to and froing, and they arranged to sort of email me all Connor's records from the unit. But they sent them, they sort of made a big thing about passwords and then just sent them all completely open. <laughs> it was like sort of 23 emails with different documents in, and it was, oh, it was just, I read those documents. I just remember the tears at my keyboard was just, the tears were almost hitting the screen. Mm. They were just flying out of my eyes, just reading about his, Connor's time in there, the way in which the staff just ignored him. And, the times he asked them if he could go, you know, he just wanted me to pick him up and take him home. And I just looked like, oh, God, it's yeah. just so harrowing to read all that stuff. Said, but then you have to become a sort of an expert. And you see it on Twitter, there's families going through this at the moment with the inquest. You have to become a mistress, a master, whatever, of all these notes and documents because mm. it's the families that pin it down in the end. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and and that's at every end of the system, isn't it? It's, you know, you, I, I'm endlessly hearing about people fighting to get their child the support they need in the first place for years and years, and then fighting for that support to not be like fundamentally negligent and abusive. It just doesn't. The fight just doesn't end, really. Oh, I know it really is, and it's 
And it, and then they use that, that sort of the fact that you've had to fight so hard, that then gets twisted and used against you when mm. something goes horrifically wrong and you get sort of paint. I mean, I was painted as a sort of, I was called a toxic woman at Connor's inquest and really difficult and scary. And, this, and I was sort of thinking, I mean, one time just before Connor went into the unit, I was howling down the phone on the crisis line because mm. I was absolutely terrified about what was going to happen. And I was just like, what sort of crisis line is this? If you can't, if you can't yeah. help, you know what? If you can't come in a crisis. <laughs> if the crisis line doesn't work, what the fuck is left? You know, it's sort of, mm. and yet that gets to, oh, the very, very hostile on the phone. She was sort of screaming on the phone. I was like, well, yeah, that's because there's a child upstairs banging their head on the wall. Yeah. I wonder how they think parents should react uh, in these moments when there's no support available. Everybody is passing the buck and their child is in massive distress. Like, what do they think parents are going to do? Just go, oh, all right then, sorry, so bothering you, thanks, bye. <laughs> I don't believe. I know the sort of timidity you're supposed to assume and the obedience is when, when you're faced with something that is so terrifying. But because the, the funny thing was, when I was writing the blog and the bits, um, the build up to when Connor was in the unit, I, I talked about an appointment we had before Connor went into the unit, which was a sort of crisis type appointment. And it was such a ridiculous appointment. Rich doesn't hold back. I'm a bit better on person than, you know, he was just furious <laughs> at this appointment because this woman was just, you know, have you tried a star charm? Oh, the star charm, yeah. And in my blog, I wrote, I called her Dr. Crapshite because it was enough. I was like, oh, I had an appointment with Dr. Crapshite today. That was 20 minutes. We'll never get back. And Jesus Christ. But what, <laughs> happened, what happened, which we didn't know again, and it's still really so I just gets upset about this. Was that the the unit? Because I made a complaint before Connor went into the unit. So sort of say this this is there is no support. And um, in the complaint, I put a link to the blog to sort of say look, these are this is what we've been going through. It's all documented. And this got bounced yeah. to the the NHS unit. And this crap shite thing went down really, really bad. <laughs> and it was actually used. I mean, at Connor's inquest, the barrister for the responsible clinician, who wasn't Doctor Crapshite, though everybody there thought it was. Um, it was a different person. She, you know, the, the barrister when he was questioning me was sort of saying things like, well, did you think that calling people Dr. Crapshite was really going to generate decent care for your son? I was just like, listen to what you're saying. This yeah, so, so you can withhold good care <laughs> because you feel slightly insulted by my response. It shouldn't be relevant. Yeah, exactly. You're incapable of good care anyway, and now you've gotten a huff over Dr. Crapshite. <laughs> It was it was almost funny in the inquest because there was a lot of people turned up to support us. My life, my choice. Um, Self advocates came every day. Obviously, friends, family, people travelled a long way to come, and some mm. of the moments were, I mean, were sort of hilarious, really, because they they're so pompous these people, and they're so they don't see that a child has died. They don't see that they've got a bereaved family in front of them. They just see win, 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 and that yeah. Dr. Crap. I mean, it was just like, oh Jesus. I mean, it would appear once you're at the, the trial stage, you know, that actually that, that nickname was pretty well justified, you know. <laughs> exactly, yeah, so, yeah, Actually, everything I wrote in that blog was true. Yeah. But, but yeah. then that was interesting as well because you've got the medical records, which, are so, you know, a lot of them were obviously written after Connor died, so they do quickly fill in observation record, records and stuff like that. But they're all fact in an inquest. The medical, anything mm. written down by a, a health professional is fact and anything a family says is anecdote so it's very very easy mm. to dismiss especially when you you've got bereaved sort of like devastated people to to dismiss it's very easy of course I had this 
contemporaneous records that our barrister, who was brilliant, Paul Bowen QC, um, actually managed to get the coroner to agree to omit my blog as evidence. Right. So that was another reason why we managed to get accountability, because it's very difficult to... If you say, well, I remember I told the nurse X, it's very easy to sort of say, well, you... you yeah. But if you've actually got it written on a daily basis, then it does show exactly what happened. And I wrote about Connor having seizures, you know, before he died. So that was... Right. And the blog's had a funny role in it all. And it's, Well, it's actually... I, I think what really interested me was that the kind of use of, like, blog and social media became really key to the to the whole proceedings because there was a they were trying to kind of criticize the uh the kind of mobilization of people online about it but it seems that that actually ended up being a, a massively positive movement that that is you know still trying to bring about change now but clearly not wanted by the authorities who don't want people talking about this yeah it was really interesting because george julian and dr george julian a sort of freelance knowledge and tra- knowledge transfer consultant and now journalist um, she, we were following each other on Twitter. I didn't know her at all, but she got in touch early on as well. And she's absolutely brilliant at mobilising people, basically. Right. And so we, but sort of between us, we were sort of like backwards and forwards. And she came up with a hashtag Justice for LB. And um, we just started sort of, we didn't have any real plans, and we didn't have any rules, and we didn't have any structure. But we just started. We both decided that we wanted to be remain positive. Mm. be transparent about everything and also we needed to raise money so we started sort of because a lot of people were were really affected when Connor died because they were following the blog and they felt like you know that they knew this funny funny young man and it was terrible so people started stepping up and doing all sorts of different things to raise money selling postcards cake sales two villages in Yorkshire got together Um, there were so many different things that happened that were absolutely brilliant and it it was because there was no rules because there was nothing there wasn't this big men cap sort of charity organisation. Yeah. People did either tiny things or really big things, whatever they could do. And it was unstoppable because the more people did, the more people looked and sort of thought, well, actually, I can do this or I'm going to do that or I'm going to mm. make my brownie group in New Zealand think about Connor on Thursday evening. And it seemed like that just grew based on joy, love, colour, creativity. There were so many creative outputs and the more that grew, the more the lawyers and the um, representatives wanted to sort of like put a stop on it. Mm-hmm. And so there was this really sort of ridiculous set of backwards and forwards because you have these meetings before an inquest, pre-inquest reviews, they're like two-hour meetings, with the most ludicrous suggestions from the trust. And they were sort of obsessed with the We couldn't have a jury because the jury would know, they'd be following my blog <laughs> and they'd be on social media. And there was ridiculous arguments. Yeah. But in actual fact, it was almost like the the collectivity, the generosity of spirit of people who had no idea that people like Connor were treated in such a terrible way, just sort of blew away the ridiculous hierarchical bullying sort of structures of the state. Mm. And mm. and it was yeah, it was actually remarkable. We ended up, I mean, in the book I document some of them, and if you Google 107 days of action, you can see all these days that people adopted. To, to mark Connor's life and, and do something. There was lectures, a quilt was made, um, beautiful quilt with patches sent from all over the world. Um, oh, God, there was so much stuff. A flag was taken around Glastonbury and got on the BBC News. Oh, was, uh, three buses, three double-decker buses in Northampton were named after Connor, which was one of his dreams. And a heavy haulage truck in near Swindon, Earthline, they put Connor's name on a truck. 
it was just extraordinary things that people did. Mm. And it was great. We ended up walking the Camino in Spain with a cardboard cutout bus that somebody had made months earlier, <laughs> those boxes. And we just tramped along that track. A, load, a few of us went. People just came and joined us. And people walked in England as well. They just popped up on WhatsApp and walking in, in Regent's Park or walking in Cornwall. What was really moving about that it was really moving to just walk, as you know. Just oh, yeah. walking a trail is, is, is so spiritually soothing. It is, yeah, it's weirdly mo- it's an emotional experience, yeah. Oh, it's just wonderful. And it, but we would meet Spanish people and they would ask what had happened and we had somebody who spoke Spanish and, and their faces, when mm. they heard, they just could not comprehend what we were saying because yeah. it would never happen in Spain because their sense of family and culture and, and how you care mm. for people is so different. And that, that was really quite sort of shocking to see that, that people really didn't, understand and then we got invited to like receptions at the town halls along the way <laughs> <laughs> it was so, That's so Spanish I love that about the Spanish because they love children you know like they yeah. they they don't have this kind of cynicism towards children that we have in this country they just are allowed to love their children you know <laughs> that's right children are out and about but what all of this did is it rehumanised Connor, I think. You know, it, like we so often hear about these tragedies and the, the person at the centre of them becomes a, a kind of a, a sort of blank space almost. But but you did all of this activism that rehumanised him. And I loved the tiny gesture at the proceedings as well of like changing his photo regularly on display to remind people to refresh the jury's memory that this is a, a person. Yeah, I mean, I think what happens quite often, and one of the, there's so many different bits of this that are just shocking, but I've, if somebody dies on a gap year in, say, I don't know, Peru, and they have a terrible sort of accident where they sort of fall off a mountainside or something, they're on the front of the BBC News website within hours of it happening. Yeah. And they can you and only just told the family, and it's already news from a, a nanosecond. And Connor didn't actually, despite what happened to him being so horrific, he didn't actually get into the national newspaper for about nine or ten months. So that was really shocking because it's like he's not hes not really – I mean, loads of people don't get in the news when something terrible happens. I mean, it's always really sort of offensively organised. But Yeah, yeah. But it, it brings but, it home. It brings it home. But then I think for some reason, when it's somebody with learning disabilities or autistic, there's, there's a tendency or with some – to show the picture just before they die or show them in some really mm. sort of – harrowing situation where you just you're patholo- almost pathologizing and erasing like so the humanity like often hooked up to a ventilator that's the picture you see over and over again yeah, exactly and it's it's sort of like that's so salacious it's so sort of emotive it's so unnecessary and the thing with connor and that was you know it's in the blog the funny moments he was just a very funny young man and that's what propelled the campaign yeah. was him at the center but then this George Julian's brilliance <laughs> and the, yeah. the sort of the way in which we could draw because of the way Twitter works and you're in touch with so many different people so it, we needed a flyer to sort of for our fundraising and within minutes you know we get a flyer from somebody and then you've got the legal expertise you've got the self advocate expertise you've got the carers you've got the legal you know all sorts of academics we had sort of like an army of skills <laughs> yeah yeah which was great We'll be back with more from Sarah Ryan in a moment, but first I want to tell you about my online course, Wintering for Writers, which is back online after a successful first run last summer. 
Wintering for Writers is designed to be a beautiful, reflective process for writers who are currently struggling, as so many are in this pandemic year. If you're feeling blocked or are losing hope, it's packed with videos and thought-provoking texts to help you to rethink your practice, and there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on Courses, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, back to Sarah Ryan. The verdict when it came was damning. Yeah, it was. I mean, bloody hell, the, the toings and froings to get to the, it's called a determination, the things you learn as well. There's an article two inquest, which should happen automatically when someone dies at the hands of the state, but it doesn't actually happen automatically. You have to fight for it. So in those meetings leading up to the Connors inquest, the first one, the, the, the Southern Health barrister turned up and sort of said, well, we don't need an article two because that's when death isn't by natural causes. <laughs> and then drowning's a natural way to die. I mean, even the coroner at that point sort of said drowning is never a natural cause of death threw that out but when you're sitting there in a room sort of three feet from somebody saying that about your child I mean your thoughts are quite murderous Mm. Um, but then so across the course of two weeks of the um, inquest we had to hear outlandish stuff totally outlandish ways of trying to wriggle out being responsible for Connor's death when you could not be more responsible Mm. and yet more mother blaming too oh there's more mother blaming I mean I'd you you give evidence. It's really distressing because they, on day one, you have to hear from the, the person who did the post mortem, and they balls that up too, which was terrible. But anyway, I left the court at that point because I couldn't even open. You get sent a report, but I never opened it. So I'm in the family room, and then Tom came rushing out in tears because he was going to sit through the post mortem, and then realised quite soon into it he probably didn't want to hear it either. And then you get told. So we're in the family room, just crying basically, and then then you get the court officer who was great so comes and says, I'm really sorry Sarah but you need to go and give your first bit of evidence well, you sort of like you just walk through into a courtroom stand in a dock you know stand in that box yeah. get shoved a piece of paper that you have to read out when you've just been literally sobbing yeah about yeah. The, the, the inner workings of your son's body when he died and you have to read out this statement which everybody read it out and then everybody proceeded to lie basically um, then a few days later, all I had to do at that point was sort of basically say what had happened. But then at the end, because there was a great big argument that the trust wanted me to give my evidence at the beginning so they could slowly unpick it. And then right. I had to go first for some particular reason around what had happened. So in the end, after the enormous arguments, the coroner agreed that I'd do the first bit on day one, then give my proper evidence later at the end. God, that giving the evidence the second time when the bar- you face these barristers and they're just... It's just, I just remember holding on to the front of that box and just feeling like, just crushing my knuckles on the box just to sort of think, do not pass out, don't cry, just do it. Oh, it's all. Yeah, yeah, just hold it together. And actually, I mean, you're, you know, you're an academic, you've been through a viva, like you've, you've maybe got more experience in this kind of thing than most people. But imagine the pressure that some people must feel who are not used to speaking in public or defending their ideas. I mean, if it does that to you, yeah. and you were told that this system is not supposed to be adversarial. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> 
some of the barristers, I have to say, there were six or seven barristers for the different members of staff and the trust. And some of them were actually obviously really decent people and they just went for the minimum. But the responsible clinician, old madam hating Dr. Crapshire and stuff, her barrister just went for the juggler and sort of said, I mean, he sort of said things to me like, well, Dr. Ryan, you work full time, didn't you? So you couldn't look after your son. <laughs> I was just like, oh, God, you really just said that to me. It's such a toxic mix of complete bullshit. Oh, terrible. <laughs> then, then the second barrister stood up and he said to me, I just want to ask you, and I'm, he sort of apologised about asking, he sort of said, did you ever tell any of the staff that they had to look after Connor in the bath? I was just like, <laughs> oh, God, this is just so awful. And I just sort of said that. I remember sort of saying to him, I was just like, well, when I took my kids to drop them off at school to go on school trips, I didn't tell the staff not to let them run on the motorway. Mm. You know, it was just mm. such an obvious, basic bit of healthcare that even primary school kids know that people with epilepsy shouldn't be left to bath alone. But it was awful. And, but then after that, the other barristers just declined to ask any questions, which, again, there was always, even in the worst times, there was always these little moments where mm. you said, oh, that's a bit of decency, thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and it seems that the jury were not fooled by any of it anyway. No, we bumped in. The determination was was the worst they could find. They were allowed to find, which was um, contributed to by neglect. And um, I bumped into a few of them after, which is quite odd. You sort of see them in town sometimes, and and they yeah, it's quite interesting what they've they sort of were very much on board. And the juries tend to be. I think there was a court. I followed last week an inquest and members of the public are very, very straightforward and they, they can see wrong and they ask questions after the barristers ask questions. They they have the opportunity to ask questions of whatever witness and you could tell by the questions they were asking that, that they, they got it, you know, it was very clear. And I have to say Paul Bowen and Keelan and Charlotte were, as our representatives, they were absolutely brilliant. But it is, it is hugely unfair because we had a lot of resources to draw and we were able to raise the money we needed. We got pro bono help and we had, you know, a top legal team. And most people, I think a lot of people are just, the door shuts early on. And if they manage to get through each bit, then they are crushed by those barristers because they are they really do go for the jugular yeah well I mean and it's actually interesting you talking about you know the trial you're tweeting last week which I was following you do because actually you are now such a powerful voice you know you haven't let go of this just because your son's case is sorted you are now somebody who advocates for many many other families now and 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 you seem to follow these things really really closely I'd love to know how you cope with that it must be such I mean there's obviously there's still a lot of anger and a lot of kind of righteous fury driving what you do but how do you cope with your kind of continued advocacy how do you keep going yeah that's a really good question actually because my research was always in this area anyway which yeah so I sort of what, what the evidence is around people's learning disabilities or autistic people and when um, Connor died and the trust instantly said he died of natural causes, we were really alarmed by this because we knew of the evidence of the premature deaths of people with learning disabilities. And I tweeted David Nicholson, who was chief executive of NHS England at the time, and sort of had a bit of a twit rant, like I do tweet rant, and um, he agreed to meet us. And we went to see him, me and Rich, and we'd come up with this manifesto the night before because Rich very sensibly said, we can't just go and vomit 
vomit on. <laughs> you know, we've got half an hour. I think that would have been legitimate, actually, in your situation. <laughs> he, knows, he knows what's happened. We need to make it count. So we, we came up with a list of things we wanted to achieve. And one of them was we wanted an investigation into the deaths in the trust of people learning disabilities because we thought, if they're going to say Connor died of natural causes, what else is going on? So it was a very long story that's all in my book. But anyway, the report eventually found that he commissioned, David Nicholson said, yeah, I'll do that, which is great, um, found that there was 327 unexpected deaths of people with learning disabilities in that trust across a five-year period. And there were two investigations, one of which was Connor and the other one, a young man called Edward Hartley. And I, George Julian was our family representative on that that report, as the process of the report, and she texted me on the bus and told me those figures before the report was written. And I remember being on the bus and just crying. I didn't even care that I was just sitting in public. I remember that because I was just like, just just cried because I just felt so upset for the treatment of certain people in this country. And that rage and that, like you say, it's righteous anger is never going to leave me because it never changes. And I just feel, and Connor was like this as well, he felt so, he had such a strong sense of injustice and justice. Yeah, yeah. And he has got that from me, and I just sort of feel like it's not about. It was never about Connor, really. That the campaign was never about Connor. It was about every person with a learning disability who is treated abominably in this country. And and that actually, following the inquest last week, for example, actually, I feel I feel it as a physical pain, and I just feel like I can't walk away from that. Yeah, you like you're one of the few people who is able to look actually because it is it's hard it's so hard to watch it's you know it's really hard to witness but actually that act of bearing witness is does extraordinary work I think it is because George Julian she now she live tweets these inquests and she supports families she does a remarkable job she sort of crowdsources a sort of basic income and she does this and she does it very well. She she tweets you know, what's being said, whereas I go in and just tweet what I think, basically, just sort of tweet a bit of what's said and then tweet some commentary, which is a bit easier than what she does. But I must admit, when that inquest last week, I had work meetings in between and, and there was a sort of three-hour period when I could have gone into the inquest and I knew George was live tweeting and I was just like, oh, thank God for that because yeah. it's just so painful, but it does need witnessing. And I say, to George and I talk about this quite a lot because she writes blog posts, I write blog posts. And every so often one of us will say to the other, oh, I'm just not sure. I really should write a blog post about this, but I'm I just not sure I can go there, you know, not another post. But then mm-hmm. it's so important to have it documented. Yeah. Even if it's not acted on now, at some point somebody's going to pull all this together mm-hmm. and hold it up to the light in a way that, you know, something has to happen. And some, something I've found myself repeating a lot this year is um, activism is a relay, not a marathon. Like I've, I've heard people say activism is a marathon, not a sprint. But actually, I think the people who survive and really make change pass the baton between them and others. And that means that you can sometimes step away when you need to. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. And I think that it is great that there are some really core figures who are all on the same sort of page and and there is that sense of oh they're they're doing that and and all the rest of it because it is exhausting but I did go to a Doughty Street um talk they do some lovely sessions there and they have one on legacy and I didn't realize at the beginning because I was going to give a five minute talk at the end and I was sort of full of rage about the lack of change but they were talking I can't remember it was um, people from Liberty or whatever were, were talking about legacy taking 10 you know you only start to see change after 10 years and I was thinking oh I've got to revise my expectations here <laughs> being a bit impatient obviously it's a long <laughs> game 
my head with some justification I mean I you know without wishing to close on a on a kind of down note but I I am always left feeling like I don't personally know what to do to help and like also with a sense that there is no charity that it feels safe to turn to for support for this stuff in the UK and I think you know in the US probably too because so many of our charities that are supposed to support autistic kids and learning disabled kids have let them down very badly have a record you know and and there's no trust amongst the community to turn to those people for support so it's left to individuals are you under that same impression who do we trust and what do we do they're two huge questions sorry (laughs) they are huge questions and they're things that just puzzle me over and over again and I know they puzzle a lot of people and I think a the the two charities in this area National Autistic Society and MenCap did start off with really strong values at the beginning they were started by families you know they really were set up to do some good stuff and I think they probably did do good stuff early on and they've completely lost their way and I can't even begin to talk about either of them because I just find them monstrous in what they do because mm. they've both been implicated in residential care abuse yeah. basically mm. yeah they are they're they're, they're they're terrible they're so reputation focused they don't give a shit about the people they're supposed to serve so I agree with you about the who to turn to and then I think there's also a bit of a habit and I've written about this in my second book of reinventing the will because when we were young a, a group of friends of mine we all had kids at the same school we didn't realise that people had come before us. We were so, so yeah. naive. We're, we're going to change things. Everything's going to be fine for our kids because here we are. Look, look, here we are. And you sort of like, so then a new set of parents come along and they don't realise the work that's gone on before. So I think that passing on stuff is really important. And so there's things pop up every now and again and I do, my heart sinks. I'm like, oh God, why don't go to those meetings. Don't bother with the all party, party parliamentary group stuff. It's all a load of shit. <laughs> like this really miserable old cow craft and just like don't do it but George and I have been talking about this recently and I'm sort of I'm getting to a point where I think we don't need an organization we don't need a minister we don't need this we don't need that we need to sort of like almost behind the scenes stuff that's just getting done Mm. we don't need you know I'm have no interest whatsoever as me as a person being involved in this it's nothing to do with me yeah I want the stuff to change I want people to be able to look forward to their children's futures and I want the children to be excited about their future and and I, I can only see that really happening with a sort of almost a network and I think Chris Hatton at um, Manchester Met talked about this sort of a, a sort of ninja network almost <laughs> actually do it you know and and just don't they're not in it's not a public thing I think that's that's the only yeah. thing I can sort of see working at the moment because there's too much self promotion there's too much self-interest in anything that, that gets anywhere people get co-opted and and schmoozed mm. and silenced which really I and mean, that's one thing that I don't think I ever would be and I don't think George ever would be so I'd like to see someone try imagine we just roll over like pussycats oh, I'll stroke my stomach I've been waiting a long time for this but no, no, that's that's quite funny. So I suppose we'll just keep on, keep keep on keeping on and try not to get too depressed about the lack of change. Because, I mean, if you think, uh, one thing I really hold on to, to end on a more of a positive note, was um, Kiara Lawrence being interviewed by Jon Snow on radio, on Channel 4 News the other week. Mm-hmm. Learning disability issues are making the news now. You know, that they, they, there is this is a group who is no longer invisible. Yeah, and I think to have self advocates and on national news is is such a breakthrough and such a sort of 
strong sign that, that there is some sort of change happening. It's coming. Yeah, it's just slow. Yeah. Well, Sarah, Ryan, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been emotional. (laughs) I'm sorry to make you tell the story again in lots of ways, but I think that I am more inspired every time I hear it. um, And I just appreciate everything you do. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that's all for us today. Thank you so much to Sarah Ryan for taking us through her incredible story. Justice for Laughing Boy is available in all good bookstores and you can follow Sarah on Twitter as at Sarah Siobhan. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with winter. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.